0: Thank you, Ryan, for that riveting introduction and uh, prayer for our time tonight. And we are going to be in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. We are going to focus on these verses, but we will be um, a little bit in chapter 10 and uh, pretty much walk through all of chapter 11. But if you would, turn with me to Romans 11, 33 through 36. Paul is praising God here in a way that I don't think you see thus far in the book of Romans. And in order to fully understand what brings Paul to this all-out state of praise, we are going to rest uh, a little while in the context of this passage, the context that it falls. So let's examine the context as to where this passage is. Uh, of all-out praise for God falls in the book of Romans. And as a whole, Romans is an epistle, or in other words, it's a letter from Paul to the church in Rome. It's a letter, but this little stanza reads like a psalm of praise. And it's important to note that we're in chapter 11 up to this point. And until now, the book of Romans, uh, Paul has covered some awesome subjects. He and Throughout the entire book of Romans, he explains the gospel, the gospel of Jesus. And under the banner of the gospel, up to this point in the book of Romans, you see Paul discuss subjects like the righteousness of God, the new humanity that we get through the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Romans 9, just a couple chapters before our passage today, It elaborates on the sovereignty of God and has significantly brought the historical church and theologians to praise for centuries. So after all this amazing truth, after all these topics that Paul has covered, why hasn't Paul broken out into this kind of praise until now? Why hasn't Paul broken out into this psalm-like praise throughout all of those subjects? What is making him do this? And if you ask this question, like I did, you might initially become even more confused when you back up just a little bit to the beginning of chapter 11 and you find that Paul is addressing some objections from the Gentiles and Jews that he is talking to. It's like Paul has just preached the greatest, most theologically sound and beautiful sermon of his life in chapters one through 10. But now in chapter 11, he can feel the jews and gentiles in their sin objecting to the truth he has just laid before them the jews begin to get upset because paul seems to be offering the gospel to the gentiles he seems to be offering salvation to the gentiles and they're like come on paul they can't be god's people we are god's people and on the flip side the gentiles start to give themselves credit for the grace paul is showing them When Paul offers the gospel to the Gentiles, they're like, well, 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 look who's finally coming around. Guess we can join the family now. And if I was in Paul's position and I had just delivered such a beautiful explanation of the gospel, I might have given three words in response. You are wrong. Next chapter. And keep explaining the gospel. If I had just given possibly the greatest explanation of the gospel of Jesus that there is, I don't think I would be led to such a state of praise. Why in the world is Paul drawn to this state of praise? In chapters 1-10, through we talked about the righteousness of God, the fallenness of man, and the glorious gospel of Jesus that intercedes to create redemption for humanity. That is praiseworthy stuff. Why now? What about these Jews and Gentiles? is making Paul spontaneously break out into psalm-like praise where the last 10 chapters did not. And we are going to begin by looking at first his address to the Jews and then his address to the Gentiles, and then we will unpack the implications of these two addresses for us today. But before we do that, I'm going to give just a bit more context to our passage. If we back up a few sentences in our Bibles to chapter 10, Romans 10, We see that before these objections, Paul has just taught these Jews and Gentiles about how the gospel of Jesus is open to all who believe. In chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And just a little bit later, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now with this phrase in chapter 10, no distinction between Jew and Greek, or in other words, no distinction between Jew and Gentile, you can kind of feel the tension start to build in the room that Paul is talking to. You see, one of the primary reasons that Paul is writing this letter in the first place is because there's already division between the Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome. And this has to do with a guy named Emperor Claudius. We don't know a whole lot about the early church in Rome, but we know that it was uh, well established before the writing of this letter. And after the church was established, a guy came to power named Emperor Claudius, and he banished the Jews from Rome, and that included the Jesus Messiah believing Christian Jews from Rome. So the Jews were banished from Rome and it became the Gentile Christians that began running the show. And it's kind of like if you had someone watch over your things, watch over your house for like a week or they stayed with you when you weren't there and you come back and your whole house is in disarray, everything's a mess. The Jews were not happy with the way the Gentiles were running the church and now with paul giving his gospel message to these already divided groups it's kind of like when a group of elementary schoolers is broken up into two teams for a game of football and i am not talking about american football uh despite my accent um but these two groups of elementary schoolers are split up into a game are split up into teams for a game of football and whichever team wins this game they're told they're going to get candy So they play the game, one team scores, the other team scores more, and after this game is finished, one team by all means is the winner. Like it's ten to two in this match. And after all that competition, these elementary schoolers are still catching their breath when their teacher walks up and says, everybody gets candy. And then what happens? Of course the team that scored two points, they celebrate because they lost, but it's like they won. And then this team that scored 10 points, they are upset because they did all of that competition. They won fair and square, and all of it feels like it is for nothing. And in this metaphor, the Gentiles are the losing team, and the Jews are the angry winners. To the Gentiles, this message from Paul is amazing news. They say, great, no distinction between Jew and Gentile. We can be a part of God's family now. And to the Jews, Paul's message works kind of like a backhand. What? No distinction between Jew and Gentile? Are you serious, Paul? What about all of the Old Testament? Was there no distinction among us when Moses parted the Red Sea? I don't remember any Gentiles walking through on dry ground. They're upset and Paul sees the frustrated Jews and he seemingly continues to feed their frustration. Because he then goes on to say how the Jews rejecting the message and the Gentiles being welcomed into the family of God's people fulfills prophecy of the Old Testament. Paul ends chapter 10 by quoting the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. Romans 10 verses 20 through 21 says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. To the frustrated Jews, Paul says, the Gentiles being part of God's family was prophesied, and your rebellion was prophesied too. And the Jews say, great, it was all for nothing. But not so fast, because that's where our chapter uh, 11 with our focus passage begins. At this point, the Jews, they're a little sad, and the Gentiles are celebrating. And to this point, it still seems a bit odd that this passage ends with Paul praising God in such a magnificent way. Where is Paul going with this letter that chapter 11 ends with him in such a state of praise? And relevant to us today, what is Paul saying in this letter that can bring you and I to praise this evening? No matter the circumstance, whether you've had a good day or a bad day or a rough year, what is Paul saying in this passage that could bring us all to praise God this evening? With this in mind, let's read Romans 11 verses 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Although that last verse may seem a a little dim in response, after Paul tells the Israelites that salvation is not just for Israel and they are a little down, and that many Israelites have turned from the faith, Paul immediately encourages the Israelites by saying that God is still working salvation through the people of Israel. He first points to himself. He says, I am an Israelite. You guys are not kicked out of the faith or else I would be too, and I'm not giving you a message of salvation that I myself can't take part in. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am not writing to you about a salvation that I myself can't have. God has not rejected the people whom he foreknew. Paul assures the Israelites that God predestined them to be a crucial part of his salvation plan. Before time began, God decided to make Israel a part of God's salvation plan. And that has not and will not change. And this particular reassurance of foreknowledge and that hints at predestination, this particular reassurance from Paul would hit close to home with the Israelites because the foreknowledge of God and predestined Israel are truths that pervade and are all throughout the Old Testament. These are things that they would be familiar with. One example is the call of the prophet Jeremiah, which says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And that comes from Jeremiah 1.15. Paul is saying just as God promised, he is still using Israel to bring salvation to the nations. Paul reminds them that he himself is an Israelite that God is using to proclaim this invitation of salvation. He reassures the Israelites that just as God was using Israel before Jesus, he is still using Israel today. And continuing in his encouragement to Israel, Paul points his audience to a time when Israel was arguably far worse off. He quotes a dialogue between the prophet Elijah and God that took place during a time where there is evil King after evil King reigning in Israel. And while Elijah is hopeless that the people of God will persevere, he says, I alone am left. God assures Elijah that he is preserving a faithful remnant in Israel. And through this remnant, he will fulfill his promises. And what was true of Elijah's time is true of the church that Paul is writing to. Though Paul and the church in Rome are witnessing many Israelites reject the message of the gospel. Though Paul and the church in Rome are witnessing all of these Israelites turn away from the gospel. And Paul concludes this paragraph by emphasizing that this remnant of Israelites who believe Jesus is the Messiah only exists. This remnant of faithful people that still remain faithful to the Gospel. It only exists because the grace of God. And Paul swings his hammer on this point of grace in verses 7-10 through by saying Israel is lost and worthy of judgment. This means that it has to be the grace of God because Israel is in rebellion. Only by the grace of God are there still faithful Israelites. Only by the grace of God are they not totally lost. Praise God that He kept Israel, that he f- is fulfilling his promises. He used Israel's rejection of Jesus to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Praise God for how he has worked out salvation through Israel. And now we're, cu- we're getting a little glimpse at what's leading Paul to his state of praise at the end of chapter 11. Paul took an objection that he predicted his Jewish audience would have and has now laid out how God has somehow used Israel's rejection of the gospel to proclaim the gospel even more. And not just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. And now let's read Romans 11 verses 11 through 24. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, in order to somehow in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree after paul speaks on how god is still fulfilling his promises through the people of israel he broadens the scope of salvation in verses 11 through 12 paul says that israel's rejection of jesus was not only used to proclaim the gospel to the people in israel But now, through Israel's rejection, salvation is offered also to the Gentiles. And he doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles' salvation is going to make the nation of Israel jealous. And if Israel's rejection was used to proclaim salvation, how much more will their acceptance of the gospel? And let's try to rest here for a minute. What we have here is just a glimpse, just an inkling that we can kind of wrap our minds around. A tiny little window into the majesty, wisdom, and sovereignty of God. Just try to soak in verses 11 through 13 for a moment. God is using Israel's rejection of Jesus. Something that I think all of us can agree on is a bad thing. You shouldn't reject Jesus. Something that on paper is antithetical to the spread of the gospel. Yet God, in his wisdom and majesty, is using something that we see as inherently bad to accomplish his purposes. Israel's sin is being used to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. And and by the grace of God, in the Gentiles, is bringing the Israelites back to the grace of God. We have this amazingly beautiful circle of God's grace being made here. And God is drawing this circle using sinful humans. And I love how Paul ends this little paragraph. He's like, if God can proclaim His grace this much through Israel's rejection, just imagine what He could do if His people were following Him. Just imagine if Israel was accepting the Gospel of Jesus. And Paul goes so far as to say that this is why he ministers to the Gentiles. He says that being an apostle to the gentile magnifies his ministry through this amazing circle of god's grace paul's ministry to the gentiles ministers to the israelites and with that let's recall the gentile audience that paul is writing to let's see how they're doing and let's imagine how they would respond to this news in chapter 10 the gentiles just found out that there is no distinction between jew and gentile for salvation This is amazing news to them. They are already celebrating at the beginning of this chapter, and now Paul tells them that he ministers to them in order to minister to the Israelites already, which the Gentiles are kind of getting prideful over, like, ah, we're in the plan of salvation. It's like telling someone who won the game that they looked good doing it. Paul is just piling on the compliments onto the Gentiles up to this point, and you might be worried that the Gentiles might get a big head, and you'd be right. In chapter 11 verses 17 through 24, Paul uses a metaphor of an olive tree to put in check the pride of the Gentiles and to remind them that they, just like the Israelites, are only included in the salvation plan by the grace of God. Going back to that metaphor of the Gentiles being the losing elementary school team but winning anyway, you can almost hear that one child after it's announced that both teams get candy like, ha! We lost, but we get the same as you in your face. Paul feels these Gentiles' pride beginning to swell, and he immediately puts them in check. Paul says to the Gentiles, if you are branches being joined to this olive tree, remember that you don't support the root. The root supports you. And if the Israelites, who are the root of this tree, were cut off for their unbelief, if the Israelites are rebelling, you Gentiles better not think you're an exception. If you do not persevere in the faith, you will be met with the same severity that Israel was met with. And you too will be cut off. But on the flip side, the same grace that has, persever- that has preserved the root of Israel, and the same grace that has joined these Gentile branches to the root, this grace of God awaits anyone who comes to faith in Jesus and awaits an abundance for those that persevere. Paul has now leveled everybody at the foot of the cross. Paul has shown that God equally uses Israel's rejection of Jesus and the Gentiles coming to faith all to accomplish His saving purposes. And this is just astounding, perplexing, praiseworthy news for us today. Think for a moment the implications for you and me of God using Israel's rejection of Jesus to accomplish his saving purposes. And also, these are not just any group of Jews that Paul is talking to, the crucifixion is not that far in the past. Paul is talking to Jewish people who may have had ties to the Pharisees that conspired against Jesus. That is the level of rejection that he is talking about here. That is the level of rejection that God is using to accomplish His purposes. The rejection that led to the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus, isolated, is the worst event in human history. We're all bound by sin, going to hell, and when we get one guy that could turn the sinking ship around, we murder him. Our one shot at redemption, apparently gone. But we all know what God did through that seemingly terrible event. And now, through the wisdom, sovereignty, and majesty of God, through the resurrection of Jesus, we are able to look to the cross for hope. The cross, a weapon for crucifixion. We all look to it for hope now. Seemingly the most awful event in human history is now our one shot at salvation. The worst turned into the best. And friends, the God at work in the gospel of Jesus is the same God at work in the church in Rome, and He is the same God at work in all of our lives today. This is comfort in the midst of any evil that has been in your life, any evil that is in your life and any evil you will ever come in contact with we have comfort if god can make good out of evil if god can use israel's rejection of jesus the crucifixion of jesus to bring us salvation you can trust him when you are brought low by your sin You can trust that he is able to take those who are angry and make them gentle. You can trust that he is able to make those who are insecure secure in him. You can trust that he can take a porn addict and turn them into a loving spouse. You can trust him when a family member dies. You can trust him when a child is sick or when a child dies. You can trust him in any crisis because we have seen what God does through evil circumstances though you might not know how He could redeem it, though you might mourn because you cannot see any good in the situation, you can trust the God who has made good from worse. And do you think that Paul didn't feel this when he was writing this chapter? The mystery of God using the bad for good in salvation. Paul, a murderer of Christians, turned evangelist. Do you think he, like us, wasn't totally aware of the sin and lostness that dictated his life before the Gospel of Jesus? And I ask, can anything draw us to a state of praise more than knowing our lives before the Gospel of Jesus? Before knowing our sin, before the Gospel of Jesus began to transform us? Can anything draw us to a state of praise more than being brought back to that feeling, that awareness that we were dead in our sin, and have been brought to life in Jesus. Praise God. And it is a mystery to us. Paul affirms this in verses 25 through 32. We don't understand all the ins and outs of God's salvific work, and we don't know how God uses evil to com- to accomplish His good. I'm sure you've gone through circumstances where you did not see any good in that situation, but through the gospel of Jesus, we know that God has and will continue to use evil to accomplish his good. And we get a glimpse at what God can do, but we also get a chance to experience it in the Gospel of Jesus. We see it in this story in Romans, but we get to experience this transformational power in the Gospel of Jesus. Praise God. Through Israel's rejection, the grace of God has been proclaimed to the Gentiles. And the grace of God is now an open invitation to all of us today. And if you want to take part in this mysterious grace that can redeem nations in your life, we just take a note from Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 9, which says, The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you want to experience this mysterious, beautiful, wonderful, majestic, transforming grace of God in your life, and if you want to continue to experience this grace for the rest of your life, keep these words in your heart and believe in Jesus as your Savior. And after all that we've walked through, we return to Romans 11, 33-36. Paul breaks out into psalm-like praise at the wonder of God's salvific work. The rejection of Israel was used to proclaim the grace of God to the Gentiles. Praise God. The Gentiles receiving the grace of God is making Israel jealous for the grace of God. Praise God. And this mysterious salvific work of God, where Israel's sin is used to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, this is the same mysterious salvific work we can experience in the gospel of Jesus today. Praise God, Amen. where God redeems us from our sin, and with this, I will close by rereading Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six. Father God, praise you and thank you for our time together. Please use your perfect word and the imperfect words that I've spoken to let all of us know you more. Please let us meditate on your truths, Father. Please let those who do not know you know you for the first time. And please let those who know you conform more to the image of Jesus, Father. Praise you for your amazing work of salvation. We love you because you first loved us. And it is in Jesus' name and by the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Hmm.